Welcome. I'm Laura Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you for joining us for a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast now on Mental Health News Radio Network. This podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts, but I do suggest checking out Mental Health News Radio Network to find all your podcasts related to mental health. Today's guest is Martin Sims. Martin is a neurosequential trauma recovery expert and founder of Thrive Elite Academy, where they cultivate therapeutic experiences through sports and exercise. Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, you are a neurosequential trauma recovery expert. You know, I know I had my own questions. You and I were um, met through Wonderland, the psychedelic conference down in Miami, and um, we sat on a panel that I, um, I moderated. And it was just so fascinating when I saw your bio, neurosequential, I think they had a neurosequential specialist. But can you explain to the audience what that is exactly? Yeah, it's just a uh, it, it's a fancy way of saying brain order and the sequence and order in which our brain uh, develops, organizes, processes things and engages and how we should engage with the brain in a sequential manner. Uh, development basically goes towards timeline. Uh, things develop over time. So we're talking about different stages of development in time. So uh, in the womb to newborn development of the brain, through toddler development of the brain, through young young adolescent, teenager, young adult, adult, and the full maturation of the brain. And so in these developmental processes of the brain, this is when the brain organizes and uh, starts to function in the way that it is supposed to in order for us to live and thrive and do all these things. And so the neurosequential model comes in saying like, hey, this is how the brain is supposed to develop in a certain way. And then if certain factors are involved, like trauma, uh, stress, like over, over too much stress, neglect, abuse, all these things will affect the development of the brain that's affecting the processing of the brain. And it kind of throws those things off out of order, out of sequence. And out of order means, you know, we don't like to use the word disorder and like to label things. But at the end of the day, these traumas and stressors uh, affect the sequencing of the brain and how it processes. And that's where I feel disorder and the disorders come from. And so mm. like the it's like out of sequence. And so like the goal of the neurosequential model is to find those places of injury or uh, where it has disrupted the sequences and kind of soothe, nurture, and regulate those areas to where they get the development that they may have needed when they were injured or fragmented or however you want to say traumatized. Mm. You know, I want I do want to get into that, but I want to get into why you decided to get into this work. This is a trauma survivor thrivers podcast, and I know you've experienced some trauma yourself. Yeah, I I, I go into like the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences a lot in my work, uh, because I had an incident that happened when I was 14 years old in which my neighbor uh 
passed away of a heart attack in my house while he was playing basketball with my friends and I. And it's interesting because December, it was two days before Christmas, so it kind of like totally ruined the entire Christmas experience for me. Mm. Not only at the time, but like ever since then. And uh, so I've had to kind of learn how to navigate what I now know is anniversary triggers. I've had to mm. learn how to process uh, these big emotions that uh, I never had any real container to uh, process. I never had like someone that understood uh, an incident like this during those times. And so as I, you grow through life and you go through things and you don't have, there's not a space for that. There wasn't, mental health wasn't a thing. Uh, at the time when this happened to me, which at this point, I think this would be 23 years coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the support that is needed from a tra- after you deal with a trauma, is it able to, are you able to get that? I wasn't. And so uh, I do think I had support, but not, it was more haphazard support, more people that, you know, may see something going on and it just help out just because you seems like he needs a hand or maybe needs somebody to talk to, but nothing professional, nothing like, hey, look, this is what happens. These are the things that uh, you could go through once you experience something like this, and that's normal. Uh, And maybe how I look at it like this, if someone has like a traumatic experience happen to them, we don't have the same level of compassion as if something physical happens to them in terms of the timeline of healing. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, if you see me break my ankle, you will understand the limp. But if someone has a traumatic experience, we don't know how long their limping looks or what the symptoms of, of, of what limping is for a trauma experience that only involves something that you went through, like emotionally or experienced emotion, not like a physical thing. So if you lose a, a parent or like all kinds of things can happen that can traumatize people, but we don't know what the timeline of getting back to normal. Some people who have a limp never not limp anymore. They limp for the rest of their life. Like it causes a change in their biomechanics. And these, some traumas cause changes in the chemical structures of our brain. And so like, if we're able to uh, kind of rehab, rehabilitate ourselves back to a space of functionality, because, uh, but some people are high functioning, traumatized people. They just mm-hmm. function highly based on the trauma responses that they have, but the, the healing still needs to happen at the place of injury or at the at the sequence. And what would be needed for a two-year-old might not be what is needed for a 30-year-old, but if you're trying to heal a two-year-old trauma, the 30-year-old might need to get two-year-old treatment. Somebody might need to hold the 30-year-old person in a way that makes them feel two again and what it should have felt like at two to be mm. rocked, to be, you know, uh, nurtured and to be forgiven for the mess that they made. You know what I mean? Like that level of compassion may be needed for a 30 year old who didn't experience that at two in order for that brain to have the type of stimulation that it needs to grow in that area because that's what that needed to develop the brain in that way. You know, that's interesting. You're right. You know, people don't treat emotional, mental pain or trauma the same they as they do with physical trauma and and honestly for me you know I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor and you know 20 years after all of this I didn't realize that a lot of my bad behavior um 
were symptoms of the abuse that I had experienced, but everyone treated it as you're just a bad person. You're just a bad kid. And I, and I, what's, what's amazing about all of the, you know, you and I having this discussion is that, you know, we can talk about this and we can see we are more educated about how the mind works and how the mind needs to heal. Um, but I, I am I am curious, what were your symptoms? What did people what did people not see was happening with you? And what did they see where they said, we need to help you a little bit? Well, yeah, it depends on the person, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I was dissociative. And, you know, the thing is, like, you got to go to school, right? right. So like this over the uh, holiday experience, uh, the holidays. And so then maybe two weeks later, school starts in January. And I'm not able to show up as the student I was that left in December when we went on break. Something happened in that space. I'm not the same student at all. Um, uh, don't I, I feel like if I could describe it now, like there was a daze, like there was this event happening, and then there was a daze over, like maybe like things are moving in slow motion. I'm not really hearing what's actually going on. Like not, and I might not be talking about actual audio experience but i'm saying like i'm not processing what's going on like this is cloudy this is uh and so uh the teacher is talking she's calling my name and i'm like mm, i look like i'm daydreaming so dissociative behavior would probably be the number one thing so i was able to check out of uh a lot and i would also say that i know the difference between the i, I know that there was a before and an after so like when things went into a days for me uh Certain things I would say shut off, like motivations that I may have had to do certain things were no longer there because, I mean, I watched a man that was only 33 years old, like literally died in my face. So, like, mm. he was a lawyer. He was a father of a two-year-old. He had a wife. This was his parents' house, actually. And so, like, he was, uh, to me, well-to-do, in, especially in contrast to some of the other people in my neighborhood that I, you know, grew up around. Like, he was on a straight and narrow, like, the perfect person would like that you want to like to be at 33 and that didn't stop his you know him dying of a heart attack like there was so the uh moral things in my head like from a 14 year old perspective like how does uh one who pretty much does everything right still end up with this fate even when he was doing something right because I felt like he was just playing basketball with us to from a mentorship perspective, like more like, oh, I'm going to play with the kids in the neighborhood for the holidays. And, you know, he never went back in the house. And so uh, there was a lot of guilt. And I can say a lot of these things are like post-traumatic growth where like I've learned uh, uh, how to process these things. And so, but at the time, like I, I probably, it felt very guilty for me. It felt like, why would I, you know, be the cause of a guy who can't go see his parents anymore. Uh, the son was two years old and it was, you know, mm. uh, always kind of traumatic to see him, his son yeah. without a father and feel like, okay, well, his dad came to my house to play basketball. So that was a question that probably was a haunting question for me for years. Like, why would he come to my house to die? Because that was the first day I met him too, because I knew his whole family, but I didn't, meet him until he wanted to come play basketball with me and within 30 minutes maybe that happened so uh there there was a lot in that and so what I feel after that I don't know if I ever had 
the capacity myself to perform how people was asking me to perform as far as being a student. Uh, but basketball was always the thing. So like basketball felt like it it gave me enough uh, engagement for at least some of those thoughts to subside and I don't have to deal with them. So the somatic aspect, the rhythmic aspect of sports, the camaraderie aspect of sports, the adversity aspect of sports from the controlled adversity, so to speak, and even some of the spontaneity of sports, like just gave me relief from the other the other things. And so like as much as I struggled in school, I didn't really struggle in basketball like that. I, mean, I had a couple injuries here there which compounded some things. But at the same time, like sports was always something that I wanted to do, wanted to get into. Like it kept me uh, I, I'm just glad, like, even though Christmas feels like an anniversary trigger, basketball never felt like a trigger for what happened, even though that's what was taking place when it happened. Right. So it was like some kind of way basketball was spared from the negative associations that I had with that night. Wow. Wow. And how long long it take you to get the help and realize that, you know, it was this it was this moment. Like, I know for a lot of people, it takes years yeah I probably think it was 19 years before I saw somebody that um was able to help me process it from a professional perspective and so like in between those 19 years you just find ways to cope and mm-hmm. you know that that was some destructive behaviors some destructive habits some some addictions not not bad like I guess bad cigarettes are terrible but <laughs> drink uh more than I probably wanted to. Um so you know self-medication became a thing. And then uh I don't feel like I had like this crazy PTSD to where I would, you know, spaz out doing things. This has never been me, but not being able to show up and not being able to engage in, in places where I may be more dissociative or may feel uh you know, just that with guilt comes just unworthiness, right? And so, like, yeah. being able to talk about what I'm saying, knowing that I understand why I could have felt guilty and not feel guilty about feeling guilty, even though I know that I'm not guilty. And wow, that makes yeah. sense, right? No, that makes sense. It so, makes sense. Uh, yeah, so having to process the feelings and the neurosequential helps me with that because I understand like there's different systems in the brain and different processes process different things. And so like the trauma, the traumatic aspect of the processing can not really be in alignment with the cognitive processing because cognitively I'm aware that I had nothing to do with why this happened that night. You know what I'm saying? Like cognitively, I understand that, that it makes sense that I I'm not at fault. That makes sense. But from the limbic system and the emotional perspective and the the perspective of needing to feel like a sense of belonging and needing to feel a sense of well-being and things that align with your values, uh, in that perspective, then there's emotional questioning, right? That doesn't have to do with the cognitive part. And these are two different parts of the brain. And uh, at 14, the limbic system is probably more matured and developed than the cognitive processing of the brain. So the limbic system processed this 
this more so than the cognitive part. So the feelings are deep. The the, uh, the triggers are very deep, and they happen like it's reliving the the experience. And so that's very difficult to explain because a lot of times people, I think this was more of a secondary trauma, like nothing happened to me. So this is just me witnessing the person that is happening to. And it speaks to how empathetic our biologies are, right? To where like something happening to someone else could really mess you up to the mm -hmm. point where you need it. This is a little different from something happening directly to you. You know what I mean? In the case of like, sexual assault uh survivors like yourself where like you're you're dealing with a, a direct trauma versus witnessing it and so like somebody could have a, a situation if they witnessed your uh story as you you came up and what you had go through if they witnessed it or knew something about it and didn't quite know what to do about it and they would be suffering through some secondary trauma just because of your situation and they're knowing about it or not being able to do something about it. That's if they are conscious and not in denial about what's happening, because that mm -hmm. also could be the case, which also would add to, you know, injury to you by being able to say what happened, but not be able to be heard about it. Right. Mm. And so uh, secondary trauma is a, is a huge thing. So people that are taking care of people who are traumatized, the people that are, uh, that are, or have witnessed people go through things also have to process some of their things. And then as not practitioners, the people that are in everyday life, like coaches, teachers, bosses, like having this understanding of what, you know, somebody could have gone through and almost to assume that everybody has gone through something, but you don't know what's what. Uh, and so being, we hate using the terms like trauma informed, but like just having an understanding of what trauma, what type of behaviors trauma can induce. Yeah. And then if we can have that level of awareness, then the response isn't, you know, the same as it is if you think something's wrong with someone or, you know, they're bad, you know what I mean? Right, the, right. Of, uh, the type of treatment you get when you're bad. And I went through that. I know what that feels like my academic, my grades dropped. And then the, your grades are dropping. So I'm checked out in the class. I'm not going to pass this class. I'm not engaged in what's going on in the class. I'm doing something else. So that becomes a behavior problem because you're distracting people that are trying to get their lessons and stuff like that. So then you become like a school felon, so to speak. Your, your track record goes with you and you get kicked out of this school. You get this uh, suspension here. And then you get this cloud that kind of follows you and you know within yourself that the cloud isn't you, but it follows. Yeah. And so then it's like, hey, you know, then this perception is projected and then there's the behaviors that come after that. Like these are more and more responses because I'm just not feeling like I have the support needed so to answer your question like this is why I do what I do is because it's like after I got a great understanding of my own behaviors my own processes and things that were what's called maladaptive now I can recognize them in myself so if I could teach coaches to recognize them in people earlier or to understand these things then we could probably come up with a little bit better ways of supporting people going through those things, whatever they may be, you know what I mean? And 
you know. Yeah. I feel like coaches are in the perfect position. So, like, I'm excited about what I'm doing because coaches see these players, like, three, four, five times a week, whereas uh, if they were to start therapy maybe once a month, two month, two twice a month, once a week, but not at the cadence that one may need for the healing that they may need, you know, like the amount of exposures that you need to this therapeutic dose of relationship that has an understanding. Uh, you know, I think some of the people that are in the everyday lives of people are more, could be more impactful than the entire therapy industry could be. And so like, we want to empower the coaches. Mm. So. Do you, do you, teach or educate these coaches in how to find or see if their athletes are dealing with trauma yeah uh and i i, I guess what we we train coaches we train them techniques we put them through uh training programs and things of that nature but uh i feel as if some coaches almost you can assume that you're going to deal with uh, traumatized kids in some kind of way. Like there's an assumption that that can happen. And we do that based off the uh, ACEs study as well, where you got 62% of adults admitting to having gone through some traumatic experience before the age of 18. So if you take that sample size of adults, then six of those adults have, have had something happen. Of those six, 80% of those have had more than one thing happen to them. So if, we're just assuming that all the kids are traumatized free, at least half their parents are not. And so when we look at it from that perspective, then if the parents haven't been treated, then these kids are growing up in secondary trauma situations anyway, because of the parents unresolved. Uh, so we're looking at not just educating the, uh, the coaches, but also the parents, because then you mm -hmm. can assume that the kids are probably experiencing some things as well because of the way transgenerational trauma numbers also work. And so uh, I feel like this nucleus of coach-athlete-parent can be uh, intentionally used to show how well the support is from like a triangular perspective. Like if the parent is supported, the coach is supported, and the athlete is supported then there'll be better outcomes and supported by like understanding how these trauma and stressful situations work for everybody involved and to give everybody the support that they may need to uh, take care of themselves and the ecosystem. Because too much stress on anybody in any capacity mm -hmm. will render them not as useful as they could be if they had support. And right. so so the whole, uh, I think, I don't want to say this and not had a correct quote, or but there is a direct correlation to um, how people view mothers as far as them being able to be a good mother or a bad mother. And that correlation comes down to having a supportive partner because of the stress that comes with raising the child and doing what it takes to have a child, the less support they have, the less capacity they have to even be a better. And that's not taking nothing away from any single mothers, but uh, the level of support that they have boosts 
their ability to be a mother. You know what I mean? If they mm-hmm. don't have to worry about every single thing that's that comes with being a mother. And so mm-hmm. the support aspect is something that we focus on uh, greatly. Great. No, I think that's so important. You know, as a m- mother myself, I, I'm very fortunate. You've met my husband. My husband is extremely mm-hmm. hands-on. Um, he coaches uh, my kids' baseball teams, his, my son's hockey team. You know, he tries to be as involved on top of his, his you know, everyday job. Um, and I think that has helped me. And I think it was really hard for him, for me being someone who had experienced trauma. You know, I had to go into therapy. I had to go into treatment. And he actually had to deal with all of that. And so he obviously had to seek his own treatment. Um, but I do feel that not being able to get that support, you know, I, I'd lose it really easily on my children if that were the case. And, you know, and I think it's a struggle, right? You know, it, it, it does get passed down. But I think that that awareness is is what's important. You know, when I when I think about coaches, you know, my husband had to do like a whole hockey training for coaching and. And I found it really interesting because, you know, I so he and I graduated from the University of Florida during like the two national championships. And there's there's a Netflix documentary called Swamp Kings. And it was about that time and how Urban Meyer was, um, you know, he was he was a really hard coach. And I don't know if you guys train your coaches to to coach in a way that's not traumatic is that is that something that you guys do yeah we we try to let coaches know what is actually traumatic and I think that's the the whole thing is the definition of trauma kind of shifts and so you know what a coach thinks uh is just disciplined young men could very well be traumatic and it really would depend on the person barring like like utterly brutally disrespectful things and there are like many cases of you know coaches being just nasty and then mm-hmm. there's also the the borderline gray area type where you don't know if that's good or bad and I think that gray area should exist in coaching because of like you never make it black and white there are some motivating factors that coaches are able to employ that the parents wouldn't need to be able to get the kid to perform in a certain way and then there's the just outright just nasty that shouldn't be in sports at all. And so there's a spectrum. And what we try to do is un- help coaches understand with the brain, how it processes things and how like maybe that approach works for two out of the 10 athletes that you have, but the other eight are being shut down. So if we, we could help coaches have an awareness of certain things because Coaches have a vested interest in the success of the team, and they're going to do what they think is successful for the team, which is tied to the individual success of a coach. And so coaches are using all kinds of methods to get their, get the best out of their team, whether they're good or bad. And that may be have to do with communication styles and coaching styles, but you know, coaches are also having to figure out if their offense works this way, if their defense or that. Like, so coaches got a lot of different areas that they need to tweak. And there's so many different personalities from year to year. Like what worked this year might not work with the next group of kids. So there's a lot of variables with coaches 
But we just want them to understand as they're having these variables, what behaviors and what types of patterns to look for that, hey, like this, this kid right here may be better spoken to by themselves. This kid may be better spoken to in a group. But if you publicly humiliate this player, then he probably will shut down because this is what's happening in the brain because it is. If you think public humiliation is a good thing, then that <laughs> probably isn't the coach that uh, that gets these concepts in that way. Like public humiliation really could shut a kid down completely. Like if you might think is I'm just trying to set an example for my team, but set the tone for my team. I'm just saying what your intent versus what the impact is might be different. And I think most coaches have good intentions. I mean, there are some people that shouldn't be coaching at all, but <laughs> most coaches have good intentions and uh, they just don't have the knowledge or the necessary training because there is no real necessary training in youth sports. There's, you could jump into youth sports and just start coaching. And whether you got training or not, whether you know how to talk to a kid or not, talk to a parent or not, interact with a ref or not. And all we get is professional. Uh, we just see professional teams all the time and coaches kind of emulate what they see on TV. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I remember Brandon Seiler. He said something. He was like, if you were, if you played like a superstar, then you're a superstar. If you didn't, then you were shit. And if you didn't want to be shit, you had to play like you were a superstar. So he, it, it, and it was interesting for him. It was like, you know, I love that. That was so profound. You know, I it, and he was a superstar. Um, but I can imagine like there's a spectrum of children who are there, you know, and they are they're like 18 years old. Right. Who are like, well, this is traumatic for me, but I still want to stay on the football team. Um, yeah. And I, and I think maybe the sports isn't always as traumatic as it can exacerbate some of the things that are going on at home. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, there, I don't want to dismiss some of the trauma that people have experienced in sports, like, you know, the gymnastics team with their coaches and the mm-hmm. whole sexual thing with that. Uh, that happens in women's sports a lot more than men's, but, you know, the Penn State situation a few years back with their legendary coach was a thing where, like, Sports has also been a place that people have been traumatized just for being in it. But I don't feel like that's the overall thing uh, that right. goes on in sports. The, the most youth sports has uh, hopeful, we want our kids to do this. But then, you know, the toxic behaviors of people that enter that space just are gives a chance to be exhibited and showcased. So the kids are the ones that pay the price for that when adults yeah. can't figure their own mess out. And so that's because it's not a mandatory thing. No coach that jumps into basketball that wants to coach basketball. Unless they're coaching for a school, yeah, there's some parameters to that but, uh, and barriers to that. But if you want to just coach a rec team, if you got the entry fee and seven kids, you can go. And once you're in there, what that coach has experienced will come out and – you know, I've been there. I, I, I didn't know all that I know now. Like, I have traumatized kids unknowingly. I'm probably not traumatized, but, like, they, I've had adverse, you know, interactions with kids, and that wasn't what my intention was. I know that wasn't what my intention was, but I don't separate uh, intention versus impact and saying, like, oh, I didn't intend to do that, but that may be the impact that, that happened. And I try to acknowledge those things within myself. And if coaches could do that, 
people in general can do that. Like the world would yeah. be a better place if you could just say, Hey, uh, that wasn't my intention, but I can see how I hurt you. Right. Yeah. Like, that I mean, that's so, where I was, right? Like I, 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 you know, I can raise my hand and say, "Yeah, me too. I've done that." You know, I've, I've said some things to my children that, you know, I had to go back and be like, "That was not okay for me to do that." You know, that was not okay for me to say that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling stressed, and I took it out on you, and that was, you know, that's that's kind of how I go back to it. But you know, and like you said, by the same. By the same, you know, thought, you know, also in Swamp Kings, Tim Tebow said, you know, I he, you know, his whole story is, you know, his he doctor said he should have been aborted, but he didn't, he wasn't. And so his parents his whole life kept telling him how much of a miracle he was. And he and he said, you know, if someone keeps telling you every day of your life that you are a miracle and you're gonna do great things, you have no choice but to do great things. And I think my husband, who's a Dolphins fan, said you know, he, he, my husband talks very highly of Mike McDaniels, the Dolphins coach and kind of the same situation with him. You know, he was, his parents kind of said, you're going to grow up to be someone great. And, you know, he's doing what he's doing against whatever odds there were. And so, I mean, I think by that same coin, you can also be so encouraging to the point where, you know, these kids will, thrive for um and and you know reach for success in in every aspect of that yeah absolutely i think because the brain is like this garden and so Mm -hmm. like if you plant like these seeds and the seeds will represent the positive things and i guess the weeds will represent the negative things right and if you get a chance to tend the garden, you feel like you can pluck the weeds up by the roots, but whatever trauma has happened, you can go figure out the roots of it and get to the bottom of it and all the beautiful things that have been planted in this garden can grow. And then you'll get the fruit from those things. I feel as if uh, if we just knew more about gardening and our, gardening our brains, you know what I mean? And the, the, the trauma is just the weeds. Like this, that those are the things. And if you're a gardener, then you know how to handle the weeds. You know what type of equipment and gloves you need to put on to protect yourself when you get to go pull these weeds up because it's it's a destructive process and i feel the same way about uh trauma to my son in the background too, <laughs> Sorry, but, no worries um, no worries the positive things are the seeds that uh like mike mcdaniel's parents told him or the other example that you use in this is what we use in what we're doing with the coaches as well, because we do believe that they're planting a lot of positive seeds. And it's like, hey, but look, this is an identifying. Like, this is a weed. This could choke one of the seeds that you're trying to grow mm-hmm. in your player, where like all day you've been encouraging them and encouraging them and encouraging them and doing this. And then when you did that, that kind of nullified the other three things that you did because it played. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so with coaches, coaches love wins and losses. And we like, hey, look, you just, what do you think you have a better player? Do you think they'll be a better player if they're shut down and they're not in their cortex and they're not in their their system, their limbic system to be able to engage in this game? Then that doesn't make them a better player. And so if you were able to communicate in a way where you was cortex to cortex, you knew you had their top attention, you had their learning brain open, their competing brain, their flow state, y'all like having this, 
communion, so to speak, in games, because that's what happens. Like, we love to see sports teams come together. So whether yeah. they can get a comeback or play together, like, there's something about not just individual performance, but team performance that, like, is very inspiring because we love to have that same level of synergy that we see people have in sports. We use sports as metaphors for everything in life, from business to parenting to all kinds of things. And so, like, when we have this cohesiveness that we see displayed in sports, in a small period of time, then we 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 tend to be inspired by that because we want to see that in other parts of our life. We would love to see that happen with our family. We would love to see that happen with our coworkers or wherever we we spend our time at. And so, yeah, I think sports is one of those very inspirational uh, spaces that, that gives us a small microcosm of uh, what we like to see also take place in other parts of our lives. Amazing. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add? I know we could literally talk all day and there are some topics that I wanted to get to and I feel like I need to have you back on so we can really focus on those topics. But is there anything else that you'd like to add for the audience? No, I've, I've just been flowing. I feel like I've been talking too much a little bit, but uh, no, you, not at all. If, if you want to ask uh any other other topics you you can do that now and i definitely come back on i i am so appreciative that you were the moderator of our talk when we were at wonderland uh i think you did an excellent job and i'm oh. glad to have met you through that process because i've seen the work that you've been doing and that you do and yeah it was it was an honor to to be in that space and to be on that stage with you oh um as you, I mean, when I learned, I mean, I, I literally can talk to you all day about so many different things, you know, even after um, our panel and we 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 hung out later that night, that next day, I, I just talking to you and your wife and learning about the work that you're also doing in the psychedelic space is just incredible. And I feel like that's kind of teasing for when I have you back on. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. definitely. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I am so grateful to you and your knowledge and what you've taught me since since I've met you. And so I really do think this is we're, we're going to have him back on, folks. We're going to have him back on. He has a lot of amazing things to say. So thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you for having me. And anytime, just let me know when we need to schedule another one. and Let me know what topic I need to stay to. <laughs> no, this was a good topic. I feel like this was a solid topic where, you know, I feel there are a lot of kids in, in sports, you know, and there are a lot of kids who, you know, they're, they're coaches who have a really great relationship with these people and it's with these kids and it's it's good to know that there are people out there who are are identifying these things and are learning how to help kids cope with trauma and 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 still play yeah i envision coaches as being uh mental health advocates that kids can see daily and if they can, because they're already inspired by these coaches, they already listen to them, they're already in these spaces. And if they could use, the coaches could use their uh, mild celebrity for kids. You, you don't take much for kids to like really, really connect with a good coach or a, a, a like a sport. And coaches are just in a great, great way to, uh, in a great position to help kids. And so 
if we could just give them a little bit of knowledge about certain things that could be going on with some of the ones that may baffle them. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. I think if you coach sports, there's always one or two athletes that just you can't put your finger on what's going on with them, but you know it's something. Uh, so you don't know what to say. You don't know what to ask. And it, should I ask? Should I, you know, get to the bottom of it? And I think there's a lot of coaches out there that has those one or two athletes that they just can't really figure out. And I think being able to be informed about some things will aid that, those interactions. And there will be discovery and learning because I, I feel that way. Like in, in my experience, most of the kids that I've coached, I've learned more and more about just based on whatever those experiences they've had, some of them, some of the life style situations that they live in now and sometimes things that they have gone through in the past or things that their parents have gone through. And so like I don't feel like I'm an expert or a master at any of these things. I feel like it's a practice like doctors and lawyers have practices. I mean patients in their cases teach them all the time new things no matter what they've studied or how many cases that they've had. Uh, or how many patients that they've had. There's always some something new that informs a different approach at, at times. And so what we can do is come up with uh, best practices and hopefully some formulas work for the, for the masses. But when, when new information or new challenges come with new kids or a new situation that we've never dealt with before, we want to have the uh, wherewithal and the capacity to learn how to even manage those situations. So we can just be less traumatized and I just want to remove the trauma from sports so the greatness of sports can do what it does oh I love that well thanks again for joining me today thank you so much for having me of course that was Martin Sims neurosequential trauma recovery expert and founder of the Thrive Elite Academy for more information on Martin check out the show notes February's issue of Authentic Insider is out check out Authentic Insider at traumasurvivorthriver.com that's traumasurvivorthriver.com as well as past episodes of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast if you haven't already please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider in your inbox monthly we will be back next week when I speak with the healing parenting coach Tina Hamill when we discuss how healing ourselves in turns helps us be better parents. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care. 